0: From the Cumberland Plateau in the University of the South, this is the Swanee Review Podcast. Welcome to the Swanee Review Podcast. I'm Eric Smith, managing editor of the Review, and I'm here today with the poet Kaki Wilkinson. Kaki is the author of Circles Where the Head Should Be. Which won the Vassar Miller Prize, and the Winona Stone Poems, which received the Lexi Rudnitsky Editor's Choice Award from Persia in 2013. Her poems appear widely The Atlantic, Poetry, The Oxford American, and The Yale Review, and we are lucky to publish some of her work in The Swanee Review. A former Ruth Lilly Fellow, Kaki lives in Memphis, Tennessee, and teaches at Rhodes College. Kaki, welcome to the Swanee Review Podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here.
0: I'm just honestly curious about the sort of shape of the new book. Me too. <laughs> and in the context of these Hope prose poems and then these other poems, some of which are found poems, yeah. some yeah. of which have these constraints you've put. So, I'm just, I, f- I feel like they're very you, but in terms of the way you seem to conceive a collection, this is sort of... It's a new thing.
1: It's totally, and it's, it's, I mean, this book took forever, and it still is not, but I think part of it is because there are all of these, these threads, you know, and, and right now, I mean, Gabe, Gabe liked it, which I thought he was going to be like, you got to get rid of the hope poems. I was pretty sure that's what he was going to tell me to do. It's going to be kind of a messy book, I think. So I don't know what that, it's going to get a little bit neatened up, but like the poems are the poems that are in it. So this is like, this has been the big question is. This whole time with this book. is like, for the longest time, I was like, I'm writing two books. And then, like, I don't know if you know Dora Malik. Yeah. Like, that's I do. how she does it. You know, like, yeah. she'll, have, she'll yeah. have two. And I love that. Like, she had the say so and shorter Ocean, And then she was working on these other two. And I was talking to her about it. She was like, Oh, I, you know, I wanted it to be one book. And I, she was like, It happened both times I was writing two. So for a while, I thought I was doing that. And then, and like, you know, p- different people give you different ideas. But then I just, I, then I was like, Well, I have two two-thirds finished books <laughs> and that was like so frustrating but then it's like these are they are they are from the same period of time right and then right um the weirdest ones are those anagrams like i i feel like they that is the farthest out you know yeah and honestly if those have to be cut I, i'll be fine you know but also maybe a little bit A little bit sad just because, I don't know, those, those anagram poems represent a very weird time period for me (laughs) where I was just like obsessively working on these poems. And then, so it's possible that like, that they'll have to go, but I think it's going to be a messy book. I mean, I think, you know,
0: I don't know. You talked about the kind of obsessiveness that powered them and you, and it's not to say that the poems are obsessive, but there is a a kind of, they seem very focused in their intensity. So like what?
1: You mean the anagram poems? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So, I mean, I, I wrote one of those for this anthology, The Book of Scented Things. And, you know, they said, do you want to do this? And I said, sure, okay, I, can, I think I can do this. I don't wear perfume. I mean, I'm not a perfume person, and but I, I like assignments. And so right. I was like, this will be good. I'll, it'll make me write a poem that I would never write. And then I got the perfume and it was like, it was called Rosewater and Vanilla by Joe Malone. <laughs> and I would smell it and I would be like old ladies playing bridge <laughs> every time. <laughs> I was just like, I, can I write a poem about that? I kept trying to do it. And so then it was like two days before, or maybe a week before it was due. And I was like, I had been, you know, uh, Kevin McFadden has these anagram poems. And Dora was working on the anagrams too, but I didn't know, we were both, we both kind of got into it around the same time. And I'd been totally fascinated by those Kevin McFadden's anagram poems. And so I was like, maybe I can do something. So I I wrote, she wore rose water and vanilla. And then I just, I started playing with that line. And then it, 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 I mean, it was impossible, but then it did work eventually. And so then it felt like magic. And then I was totally hooked. It felt like, you know, a crossword puzzle and, you know, Sudoku or something. And then also magic. Right. You know? And so I got... Like, and I was like, you can't ever do that again. That was not a good thing to do. That's that's not the way you should write a poem. And then I kept doing it for like the pretty much two years after that. And I was really stuck writing wise. And so it was this bizarre reaction to that was to like make myself even more stuck. But it was also a way of, I mean, I was like limiting the number of letters I could use, you know, and it was just, it was not fruitful really. You know, I ended up with only a couple of them that even work. And it's hard to explain why I was doing that. Like, I think Dora has a whole way to talk about how how she's using anagrams in, in, um, stit, But I did not. I was just like, I don't know. It's, I, I was just playing with this form. And so anyway, so that was that took up a lot of time, but it was this weird response to being stuck. And then finally, when I stopped doing that, I started writing things that were probably sound more like me because well that was and that was one of the nice things about the anagram poems is like they were they didn't sound like me and I sort of liked that I would let people read those anagram poems and then I wouldn't tell them that they were anagrams and then they'd be like this is this is kind of interesting what's going on <laughs> and then I'd be like it's anagrams and then they would say cool you know that's cool wow I can't believe you did that you know <laughs> it's like there's like a little bit of a discount but then a couple times it really worked I thought and it was it was like, oh, you know, I think when there was some connection between the content and the, the idea that it was being recycled in some way. Sure. You
0: know? Well, I mean, while we're talking about it, we have one in the review, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, we should, while we have you here to read it, we should ask you to, to read it for us on totally. the podcast.
1: Yeah, the one, it's, yeah, it's PostScript. I've actually never read this um, out loud, except to myself. in my room. Uh PostScript. Later, after the bid... The subtle love-hate rules, the battle via the hotel bed, the veritable feast, the tolerable thud. I felt better able to have at the hurdles. After the trouble, all the heaviest debt traveled sub-heartbeat. I left the hotel. I reevaluated better half, the let's both be beheld. The overture, that life at last, a love rebuttal. Self-tethered, the habit of blather averted lust. I let the heat be. I felt better, habbed, the heart absolute, at sea, blithe, but for the leveled threat. I shall but love thee better after death.
0: Talk to us a little bit about where Postscript comes from.
1: Postscript is a companion poem to a poem that was in the Kenyon Review, I think, last, winter of 2019 that's called 43 Sonnet. It uses the first line of Elizabeth Barrett Browning's Sonnet 43 as the first line. Um, how How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And then all of the lines in the, the poem following that line are anagrams for that first line. And so I wrote this one more than a year later using the last line of Sonnet 43. And so I think the poems kind of comment on each other. The, 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 the first one, it's so it starts with Browning's line. You know, how do I love thee? Let me count the ways. And then, I, you know, I've always kind of hated that sonnet. I think in part because I hadn't read the whole series that it's from, which is really wonderful. And I've, since then, I, I've read it. But also, it's just one of those poems that everyone knows. You know, you hear it all the time. Everyone, it's like the the poem for people that don't like poetry. They right. still know that one. And but the other thing is that irritates me about it is that if. If you actually do count the ways, which clearly the poem means that figuratively, but if you, it's like three ways, you know, <laughs> and then, then she's <laughs> done with the sonnet. And so in that sonnet, the poem actually does, it starts counting and it, it counts 43 different ways, but it's in the process, it's a list poem, kind of, and it's a sonnet, but in the process, it tracks the dissolution of a relationship. And so it's a, you know, it's an, a kind of an anti-love poem, I guess. So this is... You know, this is a the kind of the postscript to that poem, and also using using the last line where, okay, well, looking back and you know, of later, here's the if the first poem was written at, like as as a relationship is dissolving, this one was kind of a a look back from from dis from benefit of
0: distance. You know,
1: I I felt better halved.
0: We've been lucky at the review to publish some of the poems that you have forthcoming in your next book, but one of the things I was struck by as a, as a longtime fan of your work is that. While these are recognizably Khaki Wilkinson poems, they're also not. They do seem to stray against constraint mm-hmm. um, in ways that that are novel. There are even some of them that are that are just prose poems. Right. And so I'm I'm kind of curious, do you feel like the next book is you riding away from the history of Khaki Wilkinson as a yeah. poet?
1: <laughs> there are two answers, and both of them are true. The the first answer is that. In some ways, yes, I do want to be thinking about, you know, I'm always going to be interested in form. It's just when I teach poems, I find, you know, no matter what I do, that's what I go to first. When I read, when I read them, it doesn't necessarily mean formalist poems, but I'm just always thinking about form. I think that's what makes poetry poetry and not something else. But in terms of my own work, I am a little bit conscious of like being sort of pigeonholed as a formalist poet. And, I, and I've felt you know, with the first two books, almost all reviews talked only about form. And so I, I think that was something, not necessarily that I was angry or upset about, but it was something I was conscious of Wanting to try other things, but but the the simpler and maybe slightly truer answer is just that I get bored, you know. And I and it's like if I figured out one thing, then I want to try another form. And when I was writing the poems in the first book, especially like I wasn't, I was still kind of figuring out how to work with rhyme and meter. And not that I'm an expert at it now, but I it it was much more challenging to write those poems in in my first book than it would be now. And so with this book, I didn't have a thematic constraint in mind, and so I was like. And I wrote this book over a longer period of time. And so there's just lots of different phases. And, you know, there's the ancient phase. There's a phase where I was writing these poems that were kind of, I was reading all of these spells, like Egyptian and Greek spells. And I couldn't really figure out why, but I just I could not get enough of these things. Because and, and the reason I, I finally realized is that they're just so weird. You know, the logic of them is so weird. We don't have anything like that, where it's like, go find, you know, the blood of a young boy and mix it with droppings from an eagle, <laughs> all this stuff. I was just like, what is this stuff? But so there are, there are these little kind of lyricky poems like that. Then there are these prose poems that have this this figure of hope in them. So, but a lot of it just came from from the kind of way that this book was stretched out and wanting to, to try different things to get myself back into it or get myself just writing. You know, I was reading like every one should be if you're not, it, Terrence Hayes, who I love so much. And and I, I one of the things I I love his poems for so many reasons, but one of them is it is I love the way that they end up in his books, which are it's really messy. They're messy books and they, you know, sometimes he'll have things organized by it'll be like a certain kind of poem is in a section and sometimes they're sprinkled across. But he's he's such a master. I mean he can do just about anything. And so it's a hard stick to measure yourself by. But I think one of the things that I learned from reading a lot of his poems is like, you know, he'll have poems that don't totally work and he'll, and he still includes it in the book. And I kind of love that. I've been reading a lot of Anne Carson lately too. And the idea that you can try out a, a crazy form and part of the poem can be that it is almost failing a little bit. is really interesting to me. And I think if you, if you were taught in the formalist tradition as I was, as you were, um, you kind, of, you know, you're you're taught like, okay, everything needs to be very clear. Like clarity is the first thing, and, and it should all line up, and it should be neat, and it should, you know, it's a, a well wrought urn of a poem. And so, I was really interested in these forms that kind of break down. And so, I mean, I think the, anag- the anagrams are like that, but also some of the found poems. You know, it's like, is this working? And you kind of can see see it straining against itself. That was sort of a revelation for me in working on this book. It's like, oh, that can can be part of it. That can somehow be built into both the form and maybe the content too. So it goes back to, in some ways, just letting myself be messier with the forms or with the direction that the poems are taking. Um, But it does feel weird. And there's always a part of me... Because I'm, I'm pretty obsessive, you know, and so, if, if I'm writing, you know, one 10-line poem, I'll want to write 10, so that there's 10 10-line ten poems, right. you know, and right. um, the middle section of my first book is uh, The School by the, the Zoo, by the and zoo, it's yeah. these, you know, it's these 16-line um, poems, and there's 16 of those, right. you know, and so, there's, it, I'm always kind of bowing to and then trying to work against my, my obsessive uh, need for balance and order and neatness and things like that.
0: Would you like to read another one of the? I'm trying to think of which one though, because I, I want part of me honestly just wants to sit here and ask you to just read them all. So we have this audio archive of mm. of Kaki mm-hmm. Wilkinson in the review. Let's do Survival Expo. I
1: mean, it's the title poem of my books
0: <laughs> of your of your forthcoming <laughs> my collection. I collection. Survival Expo. <laughs> yes, the Survival from Expo. Persia books.
1: <laughs> the Survival Expo. It's mostly men inside the Agra Center. Pricing seed vaults and metal shelters, knives and MREs spread over dressed-up tables like alms for fraught apostles. Take, eat. And we expected this, my friend and I, but came in anyway, for fun, I guess. Except, to me, it feels a little like a test to prove how out of place we weren't, which, I'll acknowledge, is a flaw of mine. This tendency to double down, Pretending things are fine. A tactical response. Like when my friend tells me she's feeling better. And all I do is compliment her hair. How thick it's growing in. How glad I am. Before I train my focus on the rep. Selling disaster rations made for pets. Taste tested, he explains, on cats. Since dogs will eat whatever. But cats are picky bastards. And see... His pack will hold a month's supply. And here's a pocket for your gas mask, too. And here's a pamphlet about chemtrails, too. But it's the truth. We're sorely unprepared for even minor hazards, acts of God and whatnot. Living as we do along a semi-dormant fault in Tennessee, our billboards lit with shot theology and ads that boast, yes, silencers are legal. So I can understand why there's a line for 20-minute background checks, this being a thoroughly American response to background checks and also fear, compared to, say, the Middle Ages, how King Charles VI, believing he was made of glass, sewed iron bars into his clothes, and some days didn't move and couldn't stand to be touched, certain he was shattering, which just goes to show... The kingdom of the self will always be the hardest to defend. I wonder what he'd think to see us probing superior illumination. Lamps that burn for 40 days and charge your phone, which my friend could really use, she tells me, texting a picture to her husband, who responds, I think you need to leave the Agri-Center. But then we get distracted by these cards with punch-out tools that fit inside your wallet. So if you're stranded in the wilderness or captured and have access to your wallet, you might save yourself. What can it hurt, we say, and stand there for a while comparing options. Snare locks, fish hooks, saw blade, handcuff shim. Because you never know what you'll walk into. And the agri-center smells like kettle corn. And my friend is feeling better done with chemo. And I don't know what to say, but can't shut up. Just keep reloading wrong words through the last packed aisles and turnstiles back to Saturday. Appalled, of course, but not ungratified by all these ways we have to stay alive.
0: I'm haunted by that last line. (sighs) All the ways we have to stay alive. And I mean, the poem too, we expect it to be the kind of poem that comments on preparedness when we know there are things we can't prepare Mm -hmm. for. I'm just sort of curious about how a poem like this takes shape and how I'm also struck now, after we've been talking for a while, how it seems to sort of touch on a lot of the kind of messiness, the kind of obsessiveness, that need for control and symmetry in the face of things that we can't control.
1: I accompanied my friend to this it was called the Survival Expo and Gun Show. <laughs> and it was in Memphis. These things travel around. Uh, she was working on still is I think working on a novel about one of the plot threads is it's these pre- kind of extreme prepper people. And so she said she wanted to go to this thing. And she's from New York and has only been in Tennessee for at that point, it had only been in Tennessee for a year. And she said, do you want to go with me? This seems like the kind of thing you would want to do. And I was like, yes, it is. I do want to go. You it's know that I do. It's Saturday. Yeah. So, um, so we went and it was, I think I had a better idea of what it was going to be like than she did maybe. And it was totally unsettling. It was definitely unsettling in the ways that that you would expect i think that there were tons of guns tons of guns and but a whole lot of it was food too it was like these big buckets of meals that would feed 50 people apparently a lot of this survival thing is like the sphere of how you will eat and so you know people have these big fallout shelters and things like that but you could also there were these shelters you could go in so we walked around and and, i mean it really you know two things One, one was that i was very conscious even though some of these people were you know, right there on the line of being crazy, fanatical people. I still, in those kinds of situations, I'm always so afraid of somebody thinking that that they're being made fun of, you know? And so I was, like, overcompensating and being, like, really striking up a conversation with every, you know, every table we would stop at. And I think that freaked my friend out a little bit. She was like, why are you being so nice to these people? In Memphis, in Tennessee, you think a lot about the kind of ideology um, behind wanting to protect your property or, you know, wanting to be like super prepared, have a big arsenal of guns. I have family members that are people that own lots of guns, you know, and so I I think there's a lot of guilt and a lot of trying to wrestle with that and how that kind of thinking has gotten us to where we are today. Actually, a lot of poems in, in this manuscript are doing in different ways this sense of that all of this stuff is being driven by fear and a kind of uncertainty about the future and so I was one of the things I was surprised about and one of the reasons I do like this poem is cuz I I thought it was going to be more it's going to end up being a more satirical poem and I do think by the end of it it became something maybe not like super compassionate but something like compassion com- came out and it surprised me too that wasn't where you know that wasn't where I thought that the poem was going to lead but then you know the final the, the final layer of it is is that my friend was she had just finished chemo and it had been this really tough winter I'm terrible, I had been. I felt like I had been terrible the whole time about talking about this, like never knowing what to say. And so, I would always end up saying things like, oh, your hair looks great, it's growing in, which is probably the worst thing to hear, <laughs> um, you know, after you finished chemo. And so, the sense that her experience of the Survival Expo and mine, very di- like our ideas of survival are very different, I
0: think. It makes me wonder, do you, I mean, we've talked a little bit about how your poetic practices lends itself to a kind of obsessive search for symmetry. I mean, is this part of that too? Or I mean, what are you obsessively preparing for?
1: (laughs) I tend to be a worst case scenario kind of thinker. You know, I tend to be pretty catastrophic. And so, I think there's a way, at least, I mean, the metaphor of it makes a ton of sense to me. You know, the the practice of it is a little crazy. Like, if, if we really think that, you know, stockpiling a bunch of like beef stroganoff. (laughs) That's a weird thing about the food too. It would be like these, these, instead of just energy bars or something, they would all have, you know, they'd have like a a dinner theme, but instead of, I'm not going to go stockpile like 50 pounds of beef stroganoff in my basement right. you know right. but i do sort of i mean i understand the the fear and that that's like that's one way of putting to rest the thing in your brain of, of not knowing what's going to happen and and it's you know it the future is very scary it's scary for me and i think I tend to worry i tend to be a worrier like like many many of us many writers but that yeah that that sense of obsessive order or obsessive preparation as a way of protecting yourself against future Disasters are future ways that things can go wrong. Sort of preempting that through planning or some sort of arrangement, I think is is there's a connection there for sure.
0: Right. I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's too far a leap for us to see stockpiling regimented rows of guns and ammunition and beef stroganoff right. as <laughs> as a as a way of protecting the past mm-hmm. right? Pre- of preserving preserving the current moment in anticipation of the future not having a messy moment. And that being similar to the way that I think writers approach their craft is there is a kind of patterning, there is a kind of need to keep doing the thing as a way to control what seems unmanageable, which is creating something out of nothing, right? This anticipation of not knowing what's next. And especially since, as you said, writers tend to I don't want to speak for all of them, but a lot of the writers I talk to tend to be more of a worst case scenario right, right. thinker, especially in the current moment. I feel like that sort of bubbles up.
1: It does bubble up. And it's I mean, I hadn't really thought about the planning in the context of like writing from a place of not knowing exactly where you're going, like the future of a poem or something, and and the way that there, there's a certain amount of planning involved in creating these constraints before you start writing that that yeah that gives you some sense of control over what you're writing because it is I mean I I, I say this I love poetry and I love writing poetry and, and even if I didn't when I try to write other things I can't so um, with poems the thing that I hate is having to start over over and over again where you're just like oh my god I have to do this so many you know rather than kind of building something or at the very least limiting the possible direction something can go. And so that's what form is for me. And like I said before, I mean, that's, that's you know, form in the sense of, of pure form, but also constraint in general, right. you know, thematic constraints, I think, are something I'm going to maybe even embrace more and more moving forward. These kinds of ways that you can put a thematic boundary on, on a poem as well as, as formal ones.
0: Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sawani.edu backslash ralston. The form of the prose poem, right? Which is not completely alien to you. I know you've written prose poems before, but yeah, two. Mm-hmm. Two prose poems <laughs>
1: before. Um, well, two, two that have been published, I think. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> but we also have an, another element within those prose poems that we've published in the review, which is hope both mm-hmm. as an idea and as a person. Mm-hmm. And so, I wondered if you'd let us into that that new form of yours. You yeah. Know, I hope had, in the prose poem.
1: Hope in the prose poem. Yeah. Those, so, those poems, there's something about my writing process that I still don't totally trust. Maybe everyone feels this way, but like I'll be working on something, and then sometimes there'll be a a burst of of interest or inspiration, and then I'll be like, "No, you shouldn't be working on this. You should be working on this other thing." And so those poems were the other thing that kept taking me away from the thing I thought I should be working on. Uh You know, I thought I was I was trying to finish this manuscript, and I thought I needed to be writing a, a much more controlled kind of. Lyric poem that went with the other things, and then I and then I would write one of of those prose poems, and they were just totally different than what I was working on at the time. And so that was part of it. I wrote them, the first drafts of them. I wrote much more quickly because, in part, they are these little blocks of prose. But you know, if you 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 know, there's kind of a meter going. You you probably noticed that because that's sort of how I think at this point when I'm writing. And this is a little bit of a weird series to to talk about because. I don't think it's finished yet. And I think I've got to bring it to some sort of conclusion before this, this book comes out. Like there's, there's got to either be more of it or less of it in the book. So I'm still somewhat immersed in it, but the character of hope is a composite character of a couple of different women in my life. And, and, And one of, I mean, one of them is a cousin, another is a best friend, but there are several different stories that kind of come together in that character. I have a hard time writing directly autobiographically. I always feel like I'm selling out the people that I love. (laughs) And I know that, and and I don't think other people are when I read their poems and their day, but I always feel that way. You know, but I'm always really, really feel weird about that. So I, and I tend to be, I tend to feel more comfortable and also have a better, perspective when I step outside a little bit so like the Winona book was a good example of that like a lot of those poems bring in autobiographical stuff, tons of autobiographical stuff but I like I somehow need this other frame before I can kind of get to it and so um, there was a lot of stuff particularly kind of family stuff that I had been it just kept coming back back to me and so it's something about having a character that was true but also complicated and and not just, I wasn't just, <laughs> I wasn't selling out one people, I was selling out three, but combining them together. And, you know, it's a kind of twisted way of thinking of hope. Like, what is hope? Is hope optimism? Is it something that is kind of, can be dampened or can show up in unlikely places? I mean, ho- hope is a character. Things are not going well for her. So, I think that's probably telling thematically <laughs> for the book. But the last poem that I I wrote, and I think I need the series needs more before it's finished is hope is the thing with feathers. (laughs) And then she, that's the title, but then it's, 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 she's wearing a boa and she's Uh at the bowling alley, you know? And so it's like thinking about, thinking about Emily Dickinson, but also like, what is, what is the 2020 version of Emily Dickinson's hope? is? It's definitely not a bird, you know? Right. (laughs) So like, how do you, how do you take that metaphor and bring it into a sort of very, very, very down to earth context? (laughs)
0: One of the ways we might bring it into the current context is to have you read sure. one of the Hope poems. Yeah. Would you mind reading Nostos for yeah,
1: us? I would, I would love to read Nostos. Nostos. <laughs> Hope holds her card so close, I don't know how she voted. I'm afraid to ask. Like me, she's always leaving lives behind, changing her mind about what's feasible. Hope lives seven states away the night her dad got tanked and drove into a ditch. Banged up where passersby could see how deep he'd finally spiraled. Two Thanksgivings later, here we are. Hope thinks some stories dog you all your life. I think she's right. It's hard to go back home or where home was, where part of you still partly is, which is why we wind up two grown women at the batting cages, the all-day gray, a sort of syntax we're suspended in. I figured we both have a couple kids by now, Hope says, and then, did you ever want to climb inside the bucket on the Bojangle sign? I did, I tell her all the time, and maybe even mean it. When Hope goes in again, I picture us exalted, turned slowly over fryer fumes and traffic, the strip mall sweep of freezing industry, the concrete where we step up without grace or shame and swing it down the middle pitches we hit easily. It's been forever since I felt so happy.
0: There are about 14 things I want to ask about the <laughs> poem. But I, I think I'm curious first about, I mean, the ending of the poem seems to me so evocative of a kind of hope in that we step up without grace or shame and swing it down the middle pitches we hit easily. There's a weird conflict there, isn't there? In that there is a kind of empowering hopefulness that, that we, despite our shortcomings, despite not living the life we aspire to, or not knowing how another person is living their life, or not knowing how we go home again, or any of these other things, there is still this moment where we can step up without grace or shame, which means we've stripped away all of those expectations that other people have for us and just go for it. We just swing. And there is a kind of lightness. There's an elation here that seems at odds with not just this poem, but in other poems, what precedes it, which is a kind of terror, this fear and anxiety about survival, this fear of knowing where we belong. And so, I'm just I'm curious about how you find space in a poem for these moments.
1: I love the way that you talked about this poem, because I, I, I don't know that I think sometimes people think of or have thought of, of these poems as is only kind of dismal or something. And I, I think the way you read it is the way that I thought of it, that that that, that last moment is I mean, it is a moment of joy, of joyfulness. But, it, you know, it is. So I'm, I'm going to come back to your question. It's a moment of joy that's been. I mean, again, there's, there's a, a it's in a, within a very small, you know, constraint, it's like, okay, we can go to the batting cages and enjoy ourselves, you know, and this is they're they're swinging and hitting because these are very, very easy pitches, you know? And so there's a kind of like reduction of circumstances down to this very, very low common denominator, but the, the joy is real joy, you know? And so I think that's, it has to do maybe, yeah, with expectations or something, I hadn't really thought of it in exactly the terms that you described it, but I really like that. I just, I'm going to steal the way that, 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 you, that you described it. But I think in terms of making space for for that, it's something that, and maybe that is partly why I'm, I'm kind of attached to these hope poems is that I think this was part of, the end of a trajectory where i was trying to figure out how to make space for for hopefulness or or joy or or something besides fear which is i you know i worried a little bit with this manuscript that a lot of the poems are really dark and i think you know i think the poems in the winona stone poems are often really dark too but they're op- they're often mitigated by humor and there was less humor in in especially for the you know the the poems i was working on that make up most of this book there's just there's less lightness i didn't feel I was having trouble finding the lightness, right. you know, it was it, the darkness that I've always seen and worried about was there, but I was having trouble figuring out where the lightness fit in. And something about working on these poems helped me access that, that there's this relationship between these two women, the speaker and, and Hope. And then there's also um, these kind of absurd moments of, of senseless joy that I think is, is maybe part of it, but it's maybe true for true to life too, right? That there's like, even when things are really sucky you know there are these there are these small moments and that's what you have to count on or rely on
0: it's not that the joy is unmitigated right it's not it's not the ideal joy for any of these people and the reason i say this is because and this is not to denigrate any of the work you've done before but there are times when i when i read the one of stone poems and i think like you said there's a a way that humor gets you past the darkness Right, right And there are moments where, and and we'll talk about this more because I want to talk about the one known Mm -hmm. in poems, but I think there's a way of misreading that and thinking that the joke is a kind of effacement or the joke is a mask.
1: I just remember what a reviewer for my first book, one of the lines that it's like always been in my head and not, it, it wasn't. Like, I understood, I was like, yeah, this person is right. But what she said was, there is much to occlude intimacy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's very true. And I think with, I, I was really surprised sometimes that, like, the people that got the Winona poems got it, you know. But I was surprised when sometimes people would think either that they were, jo- like, that they were making a joke at Winona's expense. And there was, there were people that read them that way, and it always... It always made me sad because I thought, no, 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 no. These poems are not like they're not making fun of Winona at all. There's this kind of ta- there's a taking there's a serious consideration of her character, but I think there was this kind of absurd quality. And you're and you're right. Sometimes I think the humor people are weird with humor. People miss. I've found people often they're suspicious of humor. They misread it. They're not sure. They think that humor, either, you know, it it if if something is funny, then it can't be serious, or, right? And that might be the biggest difference, other than the fact that these poems are prose poems, is that they're not really funny. You Uh know, the Hope poems, I don't think of as being funny, but it's interesting, like when you remove that, what is there room for? And maybe it's a kind, it's like a different kind of honesty, or maybe it's like something closer to sentimentality in moments, you know, these moments of, of describing things like they are.
0: Then this is our opportunity to set the record straight on the Wynonna Stone
1: poems (laughs) and,
0: and talk about those poems and talk about. And in a lot of ways, I feel like the sort of origin for these prose poems is in the Winona Stone poems. It
1: is, absolutely.
0: Would you read the first poem in yeah. the Winona Stone poems?
1: The first poem in the Winona Stone poems is also the first poem I wrote. <laughs> I always like that when, it's, when it works out that way. The Brink. Winona Stone is having trouble broaching. She likes to float. A quick sip now and then. The one indulgence she can't not allow appeases. She felt sure in her skin some years ago. Things change. Don't ask her how. It's not impossible to lose with coaching your aim or sense of what you're shooting for. Winona Stone is having trouble broaching. She tries to float. A stiff swig now and then appeases some, though now arises more than then. Today, her mean streak's kicking in. She hates her job. She blames the jobs she quit and jobs she didn't get. She blames before and someday soon. She blames how much depends on relatives and how her next worst choice became the only out. Now she's a drawer of knives jammed shut. She blames the headset voice, a fuzzy known no, a no she must ignore while listing names, old flames, and ex-best friends and hoping life has disappointed them. It's tenuous. She wants to see beyond the spite that cast her life in metaphor. Wants to, but can't. Her mind's a rotten pond. And doubt? A storm that's never not approaching.
0: Who's a Stone?
1: <laughs> oh, I mean, you know, I'm realizing, gosh, yes, there are so many similar veins between these poems and the hope poems. I think... You know these poems. It's it's so funny because I was working on these poems. Now how long has it been? It was like eight nine years ago, which is crazy. They don't actually feel as far away as that. In part because I haven't had another book since, <laughs> so it's <laughs> like I've been reading from this book for a while. But um, but I you know I started out. It's striking me now, thinking about the kind of origin of this book and those hope poems that the idea and I mentioned this earlier, but the idea of like, you're working on something and you're like, no, 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 no. And you're always trying to turn it back into this other thing you think you should be doing. And I thought I was going to write, I wanted to do a project. I didn't know the term project book at that time, which I'm glad, but I was, I wanted to do a a verse play. And so I, I had it kind of thought out and I had these different characters that the play was going to feature. And then I realized I know nothing about drama i read a bunch of verse plays and i was like these are bad (laughs) 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 i mean i read a bunch of verse plays so that i you know you there are these kind of dramatic metaphors and dramatic elements even like a scene not made you know Mm -hmm. that that run through the book but there isn't a whole lot of the verse play left but but what happened was i i wrote this one character and then i never really got i never i mean there are other characters that show up in the book but the idea was that all of the characters would interact in a kind of more equal way and it just didn't, once I started writing them, I kept writing about Winona. So so there's two answers to your question of who is Winona. I mean, on the one hand, she was this character, this totally invented character that felt, for me, she felt like a like an alter ego or something. Like I was enjoying the ways that she was a kind of compressed and distorted character, you know, and I was thinking about... You know, like Flannery O'Connor characters, or something like that, where they're just like they're just a little bit grotesque in these ways and And the more that I worked on the poems, the more like me Winona became and I think that was like it was it wasn't even totally conscious at the time, and even i mean when I finished the book, I remember talking to some like two college friends of mine and saying something about the character. Of Winona, and they were like, "Oh, she—that's you, right?" (laughs) You know, like people that knew me were like, "Oh, she's so close." But, but there were these ways that her life was really so much messier and disastrous than mine, and so it was like there was a kind of catharsis there. Sometimes I would like I would have some small version of the thing that would be a total, you know, I would the way that it would get distorted into Winona's world would be a total kind of catastrophic scene she would make or something like that, where you know, where for me it wouldn't have even been. It wasn't that big of a, it wasn't a big deal.
0: Well, we um, see our, our theme emerging.
1: Right? Yes, <laughs> exactly. So You, you <laughs> only need
0: one can of beef stroganoff. <laughs> right? You don't have <laughs> to prepare. You don't have to the end the of beef stroganoff. That's and, right. And the same with Winona.
1: <laughs> That's totally right. So this book still feels really close to me because I, I still really connect it with the time of my life when I was writing, writing it. It does not feel like I still understand it in a way. Like I can get back into it and remember kind of what it was like then, but I definitely feel like it's in the past. Like, it feels like, the, I think the way, you know, old poems or old books, they don't really feel like you anymore. You you get back and I mean, when I read my first book, I see myself in there, but I think like, who, that was so long ago, you know? And honestly, that's how I want to feel with every book. Like, I want to not totally be able to find my current self in a past book. For me, I think that is a good thing, at least right now. I mean, m- maybe eventually when you're 90 or something, yourself is more stable or less changeable.
0: I'll ask about one poem in your first book Perfect. as a way to hopefully sort of draw us back around to closing the loop on some of our conversations. Your first book came out in 2010? I think 20, 2011. 2011. Mm-hmm. It won the Vassar Miller Prize. In it did, yes. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but to come back to an early part of the conversation, this is a book that people celebrated for primarily as in terms of what they saw on the surface as a book of technique mm-hmm. and cleverness and control. Mm-hmm. And that's what I want to ask about first is how you feel in this first book being read sort of in that way as being controlled and adroit and Yeah,
1: adroit. <laughs> that word, yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean At the time, that's exactly what I wanted, and at the time, it felt to be described. You know, adroit is one (laughs) of those words. It's a really good. It's like kind of a complicated. What is that to call someone adroit? Nimble, yeah, nimble. nimble. (laughs) I got that one a lot too. That was the kind of response that I had taken as praise in the past, and then I took. And I think it was intended as praise when it was described that way. I don't know. I mean, I I, like I'm tempted to say some of the poems in the first book. I stand by I still stand by the first book, but it does feel far away. And it feels it feels like it emerged out of a time one where I was still learning how to work in a lot of these forms. And like it was so it was really like writing a sonnet, even that, you know, all the pieces worked was challenging in different ways than it's challenging for me now. And I think I was thinking less, I was thinking more about surface stuff. Like how can I make this work on the surface? And you can only, you know, you only have so many balls in the air at the same So That's one thing. But I also think that there's a way that those poems emerged out of a time where I was really under the, you know, or in the shadow under the influence of, the poets writing before me that I, you know, and all, all of these men, you know, all the, but both my teachers, but also, you know, James Merrill and Auden and all these poets that I still loved so much, but I was obsessed with and I wanted to do these things like they were doing. And so sometimes when I read the poems in the first book, I think, oh man, like I can hear myself kind of reaching, trying to sound like James Merrill or trying to sound like some poet that I really, you know, uh, really admired at the time. And maybe, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if that's a if that's necessarily a, purely a bad thing but it it makes it makes me feel strange about some of some of those poems and I think but one of the one of the things that came out of that sort of schooling or that particular part of my education of of poetry was like that you attend to the surface you know and that you're sort of careful about what you reveal about the self and certainly there's there's an ethos underneath the the technical stuff there but I you know so now I think I am less comfortable with some of, some of the praise, some of the kinds of praise that those poems received. But I also am not, like, I don't hate that book. It just doesn't, it just feels far away,
0: you know? Would you just read the first section yeah, and, totally. and we just talk for a second about it?
1: Just uh, to go with this thing that I've been saying. So, that was the last poem I wrote for this book. And, I, and somebody had told me, and I don't remember who, but I thought this was actually really good advice. That Because I was like, I have this manuscript. You know, I don't, I don't know if I'm done. And they say, Oh, you'll know, you'll know when you're done when you start writing poems that don't quite fit into the manuscript. You'll know, like, you, the manuscript may not be done, but you'll know you're done with that thing. That has been true every, with every manuscript I've worked on that you go, Oh, wait, this doesn't go. And so it's, it, it's at least a line, you know? But this was the last one. And I thought, Can this go? And so, yeah, it's interesting that you point to that one because it was, it's the most, one of the most kind of forward-looking in terms of the arc of things. Okay, so yeah, so just the first section. Well,
0: I said first section, but now I'm thinking about it. I, w- I want to hear the whole thing. Okay, if you
1: Tactics, a short lesson. One, mimicry. Regarding threat, responses rarely vary. Fight or flight, you've heard. Yet, overlooked, self-fashioning offers a third resort. Become, as such, the thing the thing pursuing you won't touch. Or rather, seem to... Seeming being key, for even maquillage, requires a sharper artifice to forge, what else? A spot-on forgery. So, notice this, eclipses, notice me. 2. Crypsis. Others would rather try a guise of shadow, stripes, or shape and flux between two optic opposites like certain birds with get-ups tailor-made from counterfeits of shade and countershade. In contrast, monochrome supports a masquerade of subtleties, so those who stalk the tertium quid will pass, failing to see the lace wing queen or katydid for all the forest green. Eden. Well, have I lost you yet? I'm coy, I know, but don't mind being chased, as long as you're two steps behind. It's just sometimes approach feels like attack, and found, I find, I want my background back. But hell, long as we're here, alone, together, intimate seems nice, honest. Excusing oversights, I'm honest more or less, an open book. Just dim the lights so I can change. Don't look.
0: Thank you, Kaki, for joining us today on the Swanee Review Podcast. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you about your new work in your forthcoming collection and to talk to you about two of my favorite books, Circles Where the Head Should Be and The One in a Stone Poems. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for this great conversation.
1: Thank you. It was great. It was really great to be here. did Great questions.
0: Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at thesuwanereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website, or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Suwannee Review. Until next time... This is the Suwannee Review, new since 1892.